Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. U.S. Bank loses a case with no opposition at all, nobody even showing up on the other side. That's the way it should have been for the last 10 years, and one judge, a federal judge in New York, has ruled exactly that way in a uh, a limited uh, case in federal court. You'll be interested to hear why and how this affects all foreclosures involving U.S. Bank as trustee. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, August 10th, 2017. Joining us tonight is co-host California Attorney Charles Marshall and our recurring guest, Bill Padalo, our favorite investigate, private investigator, who will help us, as they have before, get into the devil in the details. Good afternoon to those in the western time zones, and good evening to those in the east. Follow the instructions you received when you called in in order to show up on my studio board if you are waiting with a question. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, Charles Marshall is broadcasting from San Diego, California. And this program is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, (coughs) GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Well, not like all of you. We have a few people online who are professional paid listeners to the program on behalf of the banks. So I guess you haven't really contributed. But for those of you who read the blog and use us as a resource, I thank you for your donations. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202 838-6345, our main number, and which is not the number to get into this program, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Charles Marshall, California lawyer, welcome again as our co-host. Oh, absolutely, Neil. Always good to be on. And Bill Padalo, 
our favorite private investigator who has helped me innumerable times figure out the devil in the details in many cases. Hello and welcome again to our show. Uh, thank you again, Neil, and hi, Charles. Yeah, hey, Bill. So we have a case that came out of the Northern District of New York where a federal judge apparently didn't get the message that the banks are always supposed to win. Um, and it involves one of the principal points I've been making for 10 years. Apparently somebody heard me or they just came to the same conclusion on their own. The use of a bank name as a trustee is a sham in these cases involving the Remick Trusts. It's designed solely to give the impression of a bank foreclosing when, in fact, the foreclosing party is claimed to be an unregistered, unlisted common law trust in which no property has been entrusted to the named trustee. Just read the PSA and you'll see the trustee has no property, no assets, no duties, and no obligations. It gets a monthly fee for allowing its name to be used in foreclosure litigation. This time, the judge apparently picked it up on his own because there was no opposition. And the conclusion is, as I've been saying since 2007, you could go look it up on the blog, when I said that you might just as well name the foreclosure as Donald Duck, a fictional character, because that's what the trust is, a fictional character. While there are differences in this case because it is a federal case involving diversity of citizenship, the main elements of the court's reasoning applies to every U.S. bank case, in my opinion, as I have continually expressed it for more than a decade. People have con have consistently ignored me, but if I am anything, I am persistent. I kept at it because I knew I was right. The court held, among other things, and we can get into those other things, that the plaintiff, U.S. Bank, was only a nominal plaintiff, just like MERS is a nominal lender. And being a nominal plaintiff in the action, it lacked certain attributes of what a plaintiff would be in a judicial state. It brought the complaint on behalf of the trust. This distinction has been consistently missed around the country, maybe not so much anymore after this. There's a difference between the trustee and the trust. The trust is the actual entity. The, the trustee is just an agent. The location of the trust, not the trustee, is what determines citizenship for diversity purposes in federal court. And it doesn't matter where U.S. Bank's main place of business is. And... As you, if you look it up, you'll see that frequently the only place where a common law trust can be said to have its citizenship 
is in the state under whose laws it was organized. So by failing to describe the citizenship of the plaintiff, which is the trust, not U.S. Bank, they lost and the case was dismissed. I was just explaining this point today on one of my consults, that it isn't the, the bank suing you in foreclosure, it is the trust. The trustee is only agent for the trust, and it isn't even that when it, it is it is sorry, tongue tied. It, it isn't even that when no property has been subject to the control of the named trustee, which is another way of saying no property has been entrusted to the supposed trustee. That is why. Everyone has heard the same answer, that the trustee says they have nothing to do with your loan, the administration, or the foreclosure. And the reason for that is because they don't. And the reason for that is because they're not really a trustee and they're not managing any trust property, except that they are part of a conspiracy to defraud tens of millions of people across the country and in other countries. By the way, uh, uh, Charles and Bill, uh, I've started to get uh, m more calls from outside the country as people have been uh, uh, reading my blog. I noticed the activity on the blog, but uh, uh, they're starting to call now. That should prove interesting. But I really, uh, for anybody listening here, I can't express any expertise or, for that matter, really any knowledge about the laws of another country. I can express various opinions uh, as an expert witness on securitization of debt and as a licensed attorney in Florida. Uh, Charles, what do you make of this case? Do you think there's more coming like this? I think in the judicial foreclosure arena, I, I can see some more coming. I think one of the reasons this decision got the sufficient scrutiny required to reach what should have been a relatively self-evident analysis, but, but we know in these cases, particularly in California and in non-judicial foreclosure arenas generally, that the judicial analysis and the associated opinions from those analyses are often slipshod and, and not at all particularized to the case in, in front of each and every judge who's looking at them. The short of it is, I think this plaintiff was held to a legitimate actual scrutiny and review of what they were trying to do. There are times in a default setting where courts, and frankly, they should do this, will give even more scrutiny than they otherwise might because there isn't an opposition on the other side to actually take up the matter. Sometimes judges will actually ensure that the plaintiff's position, or to put it another way, the movement's position, who's ever moving for default, whether they're on the plaintiff's or defendant's side, that that party is well-grounded and their legal bases for default. Uh, I think it's also quite notable that 
here you have a New York state case. So clearly diversity is not going to be available where you have a New York trust at issue as here. So the plaintiff engaged in some creative machinations, which fortunately backfired. Um, clearly they couldn't show that the actual trust was generated in, in, in New York. Um, I'm sorry, in Delaware, uh, where they had to, to, to cite their nominal plaintiff's location. And the, the court rightly saw through that and came to the right decision that, no, the, the situs, the location that matters is the trust. That was New York. So this case was exposed for, for what, what amounts to the fraud that it was. Um, I do think it has very limited utility in non-judicial foreclosure states. It could still come up in cases where uh, in a non-judicial foreclosure state, uh, yeah, I agree with you. is suing. And the other place I could see it coming up is in, in states where there's going to be a play like this to try to claim diversity where, you know, and again, Law 101, when we're talking about diversity of citizenship, foreign corporations, it simply means that there's at least one defendant who is not in the state where the lawsuit is taking place. You just have to have one to create that diversity. Right. But I thought what was was interesting is that the judge's point of saying that the attorneys for the supposed foreclosing party failed to include any allegations concerning what type of trust it was, the uh, uh, degree of control that U.S. Bank had over the trust assets, uh, or alternatively, the citizenship of the trust's beneficiaries, all of which would be necessary to determine the trust's citizenship. So while the court allowed the plaintiff to file a motion uh, to amend its complaint, according to the article I read, uh, to address those deficiencies. It was uh, very critical of the attorney for not setting forth plaintiff's basis for diversity jurisdiction. And there's a very good reason why the attorney didn't do that. And that's because they wanted zero scrutiny um, on uh, the trust itself, which was a sham unto itself. And as as you uh, uh, stated, um, I, and I, I've said here many times and in my blog articles as well, uh, there used to be a time way back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was practicing law, um, I represented condo associations and I represented uh, banks uh, and other lenders, and I did foreclosures uh, regularly. And I lost some uncontested hearings, uh, just as U.S. Bank uh, uh, did here, 
because I didn't have all my paperwork in order, and it was not clear whether or not all the rules had been followed and I had established uh, uh, the uh, elements necessary to even be in court. And so I'd have to go back and redo things and maybe even get more exhibits and all that stuff. The problem is that these lawyers can't go back and redo things and get more exhibits without putting the whole scheme of remic trusts in jeopardy. It'll be interesting to see what happens in this case as it goes forward because the, uh, the attorneys are given permission to amend and come back to address these deficiencies. I'd like to see how they address the deficiencies, especially the issue of what kind of trust it is and what kind of control U.S. Bank has over the trust assets or whether they're willing to disclose the citizenship of the trust beneficiaries, which I'm sure they're not going to do because they've been hiding that for as long as they've had remic trusts. Well, Neil, they, another- well, well, Neil they, they didn't uh, comply with that order, and they did not um, – take the 30 days to amend or do any of that they just simply like uh you know eric mains uh, coined it last week on the show as a cockroach the light came on and they scattered they basically did not respond and thus uh the final judgment uh was entered in the case uh, the following month i think on april 12th so you hit the nail on the head a minute ago and that's that that these entities they don't want any scrutiny because especially in this case not only is the trustee U.S. Bank acting as a, a straw man sham uh, agent, but the actual LSF-9 trust, uh, and I've written about this and, and listeners are probably quite aware of my, my findings on that, is that is a complete sham entity, and it's by their very own documents that they've produced um, in, in a case that I just recently testified in that's continuing in uh, Connecticut. But where this judge also... Uh, lays out from past experience dealing with this plaintiff's law firm is he points out that a similar LSF-8 series uh, case came before him, and they put in a such a heavily redacted uh, document, which is their typical servicing agreement that they uh, allege gives them the authority to do whatever. But the judge even picked up on the fact that what he could read in that document, even the parts that were left unredacted uh, seemed to imply or it was seemed to, to show uh, uh, facts and evidence against their own interests <laughs> that that the trust itself like the LSF-9 master participation trust it's not an actual trust that hold, holds assets by its own definition it is just simply another agent who represents more undisclosed agents on behalf half of more undisclosed investors so in this case, they they just there, there's nothing they could do. They they just scattered and they didn't even respond to the order. They just took the judgment and walked away. So here's and you put that very well. <clears throat> so here's another example of how the homeowner wins, but it doesn't get much in the way of press coverage, and so most people think that the foreclosure crisis is over, which it isn't. Some states are hitting, and locales 
are hitting highs that they never had before in terms of foreclosures, and that there's no point in contesting because you're going to lose anyway. The banks have managed, because because of their financial strength, they're the ones closest to the microphone, and they've convinced everybody that, you know, there is no defense because you didn't pay. And, in, in fact, there are many defenses that do succeed and in which I have been the, uh, the attorney for the prevailing party, and many other attorneys across the country have been, most of them ending up in a settlement which has a confidentiality clause, so you don't hear about the thousands of cases that were settled to the homeowner's advantage, but you do hear about how many foreclosure sales there have been um, uh, in a particular area or nationally. But here's another joust. In Florida, at least, there are exceptions about who can do business, who can sue to collect a debt, uh, usually involving a bank. Uh, Normally, if you want to do business in Florida, you have to register to do business in Florida. So, uh, but the trust is not a bank. Far from it. In fact, it's not even a business. And unless it actually purchased the actual debt, which, as you point out, they're really just an agent for an agent for an agent, and they never did make the purchase because they never did get the funding from the investor proceeds. In Florida, they may not, under any circumstances, sue or do business unless and until they register and file annual reports with the state of Florida. I don't think the trust qualifies for any of the exceptions. And now that this case is at least one dot on the board, uh, pointing us into in the direction that, hey, it wasn't U.S. Bank that was suing to foreclose. It was the trust in which U.S. Bank was named as the agent. Now that the, that, that point is being made, then the focus of attention can move from the trustee, supposedly, who has no duties and no property entrusted to it, to the trust itself, which in most cases runs from uh, non-existent, in other words, just named, but there are no papers, to uh, fatal defects in, in the papers, they're incomplete, to no property ever having been bought from an accounting point of view by the trust. Unless that trust is holding loans receivable, it doesn't own the debt. And if it doesn't own the debt, if it's not holding accounts receivable, In fact, if it doesn't have any books or records at all, which it probably doesn't, then it's obvious that no property is in that trust, and the existence of the trust 
the trustee, the servicer, the uh, depositor, uh, the seller, all these things that are mentioned in a pooling and servicing agreement, the existence of those entities becomes irrelevant because that loan never made it into the trust. When you combine that with the fact that the trust is not receiving any payments, not making any filings, generally filing a 15D with the SEC after some period of time, if it ever registered with the uh, with the SEC, uh, which says we're not reporting anything anymore, and there's no reason for it to report anything. It never did any business, and it has it has no income. Now, the point of the trust, as sold to the investors, was obviously to buy existing loans that had been underwritten by banks who had made the loans and had a risk of loss. And that the money from the borrowers on those loans would be funneled through the trust under an infrastructure set up by the trust to the investors. And indeed, the investors continue to receive payments with a distribution report that always, in my experience, and Bill, you can uh, contradict me if, if I'm wrong, it always has a disclaimer that says, Something like Wells Fargo does not guarantee anything on this is true. And and they build up their claim for what they call servicer advances, but in fact a really uh, uh, return of principal to the investors. So I asked the question to either one of you, Bill, Charles, where do you think these kinds of facts are going to take us over time as they get squeezed out like pus from pimples? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think it's all an illusion that um, uh, we're, we're chasing on a regular basis, but I think the evidence is clearly uh, uh, coming together that when pressed uh, for uh, documents to show the authority or anything of the existence of these trusts and fake trusts and all that. Uh, there literally is is no one and has been no one with any personal knowledge who ever appears uh, to attest to anything. It's all basically the the servicers um, who aren't even uh, not not only are they not the trustee or they have no knowledge of the trust itself. They're just uh, uh, parrots that get up there and say whatever they're coached to say, but real, there just isn't anybody that has any personal knowledge. And I sent you over uh, some tidbits from this uh, deposition transcript from the vice president of global trustee services at U.S. Bank. His name is John Richards. And this deposition came out in the uh, Fox case where we got the good stipulations on those codes that we've talked about. Um, but it's very clear when when asked the questions uh, of what U.S. Bank's knowledge is in any of this, um, 
not only are they the Sergeant Schultz of the operation, they know nothing, but what's very telling is that when asked if he even has, or U.S. Bank even has a way to communicate and identify who the certificate holders are behind these trusts, he has no knowledge or any way of knowing. Um, he admits that U.S. Bank can't, has no way to communicate with, with the certificate holders, and he doesn't even know who they are. In fact, he says you have to go to the uh, DTC uh, to probably find out who, who even owns the certificate. So what's you know funny there is you know they constantly file these notices of default or foreclosure actions, and they always say a U.S. bank on behalf of the certificate holders are, are uh, crying foul and declaring a default. Well, first of all, they've never had any communication with them, and they don't even know who they are. They don't even know how to even trace who those owners are, and that's incredible in and of itself. But he also admits in there that there's, and, and this is also in the U.S. Bank flyers and whatnot, that there is no agency connection between the servicer and the trustee of these remit trusts. So they can't tell the servicers what to do. They don't even believe that there's really any oversight as to who can tell a servicer what they can and cannot do. But there's certainly, by admission, is no, there's no agency between those parties. So when you have a case, uh, even, even in my own case in Montana, where U.S. Bank as trustee comes in as the plaintiff, uh, I filed a motion to show authority. Prove your authority, who, you know, that you verified this action or that you're aware of it. And their response came back, and they essentially then caved and admitted that uh, J.P. Morgan Chase was the, the servicer behind the scenes that orchestrated the filing of the complaint and that there's no retainer with U.S. Bank, and U.S. Bank doesn't have any knowledge of anything. Um, so, you, you know, you've got to push for this stuff, um, and, and what you'll ultimately get is nothing because, again, you're trying to prove a negative. There isn't anything behind the curtain. The emperor you know, has no clothes, and they simply can't. You know, you're you're going to butt your head up against the wall every time on this, but you got to force it and and tell them to to prove who they are. Um, you know, it was interesting when you look at this case we're talking about. If you look at the uh, corporate disclosure statement that was filed, it was simply on behalf of U.S. Bank as trust uh, as a banking institution. They don't say anything about the trust in the corporate disclosure. So it's 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 all a game. It's all a sham, and I think. Um, we're making great progress, and I think uh, um, when you start to press these things, um, I think courts are going to start to do more of what we're seeing here. Yeah, I think it's particularly I, I telling. Say again, Charles? was saying, particularly as applied to judicial foreclosure states, because their standing is absolutely a fundamental issue for plaintiffs, just as it just as it is is a fundamental issue for plaintiffs in California when they're the uh, plaintiffs. So you know here we have the borrowers as plaintiffs typically, but absolutely in judicial foreclosure states, I think this case is going to have a lot of utility. And in non-judicial foreclosure states, I think it should be used in a, in a situation where there's a motion to dismiss or a demur from the defendant. And where U.S. where one of these U.S. bank trusts, quote unquote, is one of the central defendants, this opinion needs to be uh, included in the opposition pleading 
to try to convince judges, you know, as difficult as that can be in California, to try to convince judges that they simply don't have the bona fides that they claim they do to base their non-judicial foreclosure paperwork on. I think this case tells a lot from what what Bill uh, added, which is that they walked away which is exactly what I have found in hundreds of cases where they're confronted with, you know, uh, uh, a square room with no door. Um, if they have to describe the type of trust at issue and the focus turns to the trust, they're out of there. Goodbye, they just walk away. If they have to describe the the degree of control that the supposed trustee has over the trust assets, as Bill just described, there is no control. And they're out of there. They're not going to say another word. If they have to describe the citizenship of the trust beneficiaries, they're out of there because they don't they can't disclose the trust beneficiaries. Because those beneficiaries then could be contacted, because in order to disclose the citizenship, they would have to disclose the identity. Those beneficiaries could be contacted uh, uh, by homeowners to say, hey, you know, we got a deal for you on modification, and your. Uh, uh, the representative of the trust doesn't own the the loan and refuses to do business with us, and we can save your asset. So th- this case, while seemingly technical in jurisdiction and diversity in federal court versus state court, I think it is highly instructive of uh and right there in the open because usually when they walk away there's just a dismissal or something like that in, in, in this case they had the choice of amending in 30 days to allege what had to be alleged and what any bank by the way could allege if they had a legitimate foreclosure on their hands they were given that choice and they walked away, final judgment is entered for the homeowner. Now, what's interesting after that point is, okay, there's still an encumbrance on the record. There's still a note that was signed, may not exist anymore, uh, it was probably destroyed, uh, but I'm sure they'd be happy to fabricate a new original. So the question is, what does a homeowner do where he's just one? It's obvious they can't assert any interest of the trust over the loan. But the encumbrance is still there. Who does the homeowner go to in order to get the encumbrance lifted off of the property in the county property records. You want to take that one on, Charles? Um, absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, I think this shows 
that what we've been saying for years, what you've been saying for years, is absolutely accurate, that the foreclosure meltdown and all of the fraudulent paperwork on on which it was based and, and which paperwork created, in many ways, the financial crisis, um, because so many loans were extended to so many people uh, who couldn't pay and the standards were lowered so much. There was so much falsification. It was out of control at so many levels that when scrutiny came to the paperwork and what was being done, uh, you know, the other side has, has been, been putting up partial roadblocks uh, to, to stanch the, uh, the bleeding on their side. And unfortunately they've been successful to a large extent at not being held accountable so far. Um, you know, part of the problem is legal procedure itself because I can absolutely see that one of the defenses that's going to be used, you know, by U.S. Bank generally, and if this case reappears in any kind of a state venue, I anticipate U.S. Bank, you know, the, the so-called entity at issue in this particular case, I, I anticipate that U.S. Bank entity, quote-unquote, claiming that this case is only reaching the issue of diversity citizenship in this case, meaning that you can't read this court holding to to say anything definitive about their right to move forward. It only says that they can't move forward in federal court because of a diversity requirement. I I think that that would be a false reading and and a misplaced holding, but I do see them making that right. argument. And unfortunately, unfortunately, with legal procedure being the way it is, they will potentially get some utility out of that argument. There may be later rulings, even in state court, related to this case saying, well, we're not going to reach the final issue about U.S. Bank standing. We're simply going to say that in that particular case, they didn't have standing for purposes of diversity citizenship, but we're not going to go beyond that and uh, analyzing what extent of standing they had. I can see that kind of head of, you know, head, head on the pin type analysis limiting the utility of this for borrowers. But whenever we get a nugget, you know, whether it's this or the Gulliex case uh, that we recently talked about on this show, we, we have to run with it as much as we can uh, because the other side still has the majority of favorable opinion, you know, the favorable legal opinions on their side. So, yes, we we should and will figure out a way to exploit this decision. I, I, I agree with that. And here's one way that, that I'm, uh, well, that I toyed with years back and that I'm toying with again. I mean, for years I've been talking about um, um, attacking the so-called substitution of trustee on a deed of trust because it's based upon the same principles as the uh, judicial foreclosure. It has to be a beneficiary, uh, the beneficiary uh, of uh, the encumbrance that directs the trustee 
to foreclose. And, of course, it's always interesting to see how, in all cases, they substitute a trustee of their own new choosing because they got a deal. But I think added to that, which is a point I brought up some years back and I haven't made much point of now, but now I'm going to. I think that the marketplace has matured enough that a coordinated, well-pled attack on the trustee of the trust and quoting from this case um, that, you know, the homeowner has tried to determine the type of trust that uh, is alleged to own this, and a homeowner has already determined that the named trustee has no control over the trust asset. And the as for the certificates, because U.S. Bank likes to file uh, as trustee for and then a stack of paper certificates numbered, you know, 601 to 903, um, uh, which you can't be a trustee of a stack of paper. Uh, uh, you've got to be a trustee for a named trust in which there is some kind of personal or real property. So I think that we may have matured to the point where we are, um, if, we, if we litigate hard enough, we may be able to educate the judges who might be more willing to receive the education that there is a difference, Judge, between the bank, which you think is the, which everybody thinks is the foreclosing party, and the trust, who is the one that's actually named as the foreclosing party, or at least implied as the foreclosing party, and the beneficiaries, if there's no trust named, because in order for U.S. Bank to call itself a trustee, it's got to be the trustee for somebody. It's got to be the trustee for the trust. It's got to be the trustee for the beneficiaries. They don't have that information. I think an allegation could be made like that, and I think that the case would be won in discovery when the court decides that you are entitled to know exactly what the answers to those questions are and entitled to know the uh, degree of control over the trust assets, uh, which you've already established by reference to the PSA. Well, Neil, I'd, I'd even take it one step further. It's, it may sound a little sinister, but when I talk about the disconnect between U.S. Bank and its knowledge of who the certificate holders are, at some point down the road, and it has to happen soon, is that these I, the identity of the certificate holders have to be made, whether it's under seal or whatever. They have got to come forward because this smacks of money laundering, 
Um, you know, in well, today's age of ISIS and terrorism and everything, who owns these certificates? You know, and, yeah, and they refuse. They refuse to identify who those investors are. And I think you have to get this to the court's attention. That's the nexus of the whole fraudulent scheme. The investors don't know anything, and the, the trustee doesn't know anything. So theoretically, the trustee can't be held liable for whatever bad acts occur. We just ran over. I have to uh, sign off here. Thank you very much, Charles, Bill, again, Charles Marshall, Bill Padalo, and we'll yes. see you again next week. Thank you, Neil. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle.